Hey, welcome to the Extra Podcast. This is Daniel Markin here with Jeff Bucknam and Greg Harris. Hi, Daniel. Uh, we have a plaid table. You have a plaid shirt. I do. And Greg has a salmon shirt. That's right. Do you ever eat salmon, Greg? For dinner? Because it's gluten-free? We we used to eat it a lot, and then we got food poisoning one time with salmon, and since then we've been a little bit gun-shy with the salmon. Mm. That's, uh, that's exciting stuff, Greg. Greg, it's great. Hey, Jeff, have you ever I got, got I got food food poisoning once or felt sick after eating pizza, but it never stopped me from eating pizza again. <laughs> <laughs> what, was, what was your question, Daniel? I was going to say, you can you ask me, but if I got food poisoning before. Daniel, have you gotten food poisoning before? No. Okay. This weekend, uh, this weekend, did you guys do something ex- uh, exciting, Greg? Uh, we've been told already that you were in Tawasin. Tawasin, Tawasin. I was in Tawasin. The locals call it Tawasin. The French call it Tawasin. And uh, look, if you're gonna go, if you if you want a good summer outing, good summer day trip, warm weather, want to go somewhere somewhere nice, forty five minutes down, fifty minutes down the road, you get to Tawasin. Mm. Here's what you do: you you pick up some pizza at Mario's Kitchen. And then you go either to the beach, which is great, really great playground at the beach, at the Boundary Bay Beach. Or you can go up first, uh, turn on to First Avenue to a place called Diefenbacon Park. Diefenbaker. John Diefenbacon was a prime minister of Canada. <laughs> Baker. Diefenbaker Are you sure Park. it's not Diefenbacon? That would make sense if there was a prime minister of Canada and they <laughs> named Bacon. it after him. Yeah. That name bacon after him. I don't know. No, no. I've never been there, but this is this is good local knowledge. Decent so baker. you're giving ideas for people. This is to the spend history a- of Canada that we're talking about here, and it is part of our heritage, Greg. That's right. So, do you think Tawasin is kind of an overlooked spot? I think most people are like, oh, White Rock. That's where I'm headed. I think if people want to do a beach day, they'll go to White Rock. I think they're fools. If you're a big mall walker, you should go Too to Tawasin wow. Mills Mall. That's true. Nice mall. Nice mall. Good. Jeff, what'd you do, man? You went to uh, uh, I wasn't I was not here on Saturday because I went to uh, to Seattle, which is my hometown, to Bellevue, actually, the east side of Seattle, and I was there for a, a small conference at uh, what's called Doxa Church now. It used to be uh, the old Mars Hill Bellevue site building, but it uh, yeah Doxa, and uh, it was it was really good. It was great to be there. I grew up there, right? So. Mm. Lots of memories. Lots of reminiscing. The building, in fact, that they're in is called the, what used to be called the John Dan's Theater. So I remember going to movies there. We used to we used to sit in the balcony at the edge of the balcony balcony and drop lemon heads or uh, peanut M and M's, and they would people. roll. And they would roll like you could drop them down. You hear them go, and then they'd roll all the way forward to the front of the theater. We only did that during boring films, though. What's a lemon head? Oh, that's an American candy. They're just little round lemon. They're very round, though. That's the idea. They're like little balls. Yeah, it's like a little lemon ball, and you it like, tastes like yeah. lemon. Yeah. Hard, kind of hard candy. Yeah, yeah. a little bit. You can chew them because when you drop it, it goes. Gotcha. Yeah, it was a good time though. Enjoyed enjoyed being down there. Went with a team from our church to learn a little bit more about how we can better reach out to our communities through our community groups. So some stuff that maybe we'll be incorporating in the next little while. So liked it a lot. Cool. Good. Good to hear. Hey, and ask me what I did. What did you do this weekend? I uh, I got my shots for my Uganda trip that I'm going on. Oh yeah. With the North Young Adults, we're going to visit Wellington and Dolly Olyech at Word of Life Ministry, and then also to Banana Bread Barb's Orphanage, Home of Angels. That's be great. You're gonna have a good time. Yeah. So, anyways, they jabbed me five times with all the shots, and uh, the first one really hurt, and I got a. I told him, I said, I, I'm feeling lightheaded. He's like, lie down. 
and he gave me sugar. Did you pass out? No. Ooh, I've only ever passed out at the never. dentist. Really? Yeah. Mm. The idea of the dentist makes me pass out. Yeah. Don't you make me think about it now, and now I'm going to fall over. It's happened. Anyway. Oh, but I was going to say, hey, look, speaking of Uganda, uh, I should just make a little shameless plug here. We have a fundraiser, our final fundraiser coming up on April 28th. We have a Leland, Leland Claussen comedy night and silent auction. So if you want to come out to that, the tickets are $20 to see Leland Claussen. There's also a silent auction happen. Greg, you love Leland Claussen. Can you tell us a little bit about Leland Claussen? I'm a big fan of Leland. I One of my favorite things about Leland Claussen is an ongoing feud that's completely made up between <laughs> him and I on Facebook. It's one of the, it's one of the few things at at present I find redeemable about Facebook right? is that whenever something comes up with Leland, if I find it on my feed somehow, I'll, I'll tag him and make fun of him. Good. It's the little things, Greg. It's, it's that thing actually <laughs> that makes it worthwhile. Good. Well, now that now Mark Zuckerberg's got all that information on you. Mm-hmm. So that's good. That's why I keep getting Leland stuff on my feed. Yeah, probably. Mark's like, wow, this guy really likes Leland Claus. <laughs> <laughs> that was one of the questions they asked at the deposition. <laughs> All right, you've been looking into Greg Harris's stuff. Um, I know nothing of that. So um, that's good. Great. All right. When hey, are, awesome. When are you? Uh, when is this thing again? When is it? Uh, April twenty eighth at seven thirty p.m. Right. So it'll be after the Saturday night, Saturday night service. So that's so at seven thirty. April twenty eighth. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So Jeff, maybe you'll be there. Hey, I will be there. Good. That's this weekend. That's this weekend. You're auctioning a car. So that's I'm, true. There is a car owned by. Somebody who owned the car. Did you used to own the car, Jeff? <laughs> you so are you telling me that if I bid on this uh, van, I could sit in the very if I, if I, chair that, that Jeff Bucknam mm, sat in to drive places? You, yes, yes. Oh, man, wow. you would be sitting in the same spot that nest, nestled me for so, so long. Many a trip. Yeah. Do you have a nickname for the van? My uh, daughter used to call it the sprinkle car. Okay. <laughs> Why? I don't know. Because I think when she was really little, she thought it was, that's how you said silver. Oh. So she called it the sprinkle car. So. All right. So Wait. we're we're auctioning off the sprinkle car. Proceeds go to the, uh, to the. Uganda. Yeah. Mission ship team. So. Wonderful. Good times. So that's my plug. Shameless plug. Let's move into some, uh, some talks here, guys. We just did the Jude cert. <laughs> Let me start that. Again, we were doing Jude sermon series. Yeah. And Jeff, you preached this weekend. I did. Tell us about that, man. Because you, you did six points in your sermon. I did. Yeah. And uh, it took you 22 minutes to get through one of them. <laughs> the first. Yeah. You know, the hard part about this passage is there's so much uh, background material, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, where he's, he's citing all these different stories and... Right. Uh, examples from the Old Testament and, and so, in some cases uh, apocryphal books like First Enoch that nobody in our setting has any access to really or has we've never most people have never even thought about yeah. those books and so as a result he's appealing to a common uh, Jewish history so everybody who was Jewish who was writing to in his day would have like he could just make mention of it and it wouldn't they'd be like oh yeah we know the story whereas for us a lot of those stories, if I, I mean, had I asked most people in our church, what is Korah's rebellion? Like not that many people would know what Korah's rebellion is. Most don't know what Balaam, which probably speaks to a little bit of our biblical illiteracy. It doesn't mean everybody would, uh, would hold, you know, wouldn't know those things, but 
yeah, it just takes it. So in the end, it takes time to, to do that. But you know what? I'm pr- relatively proud of myself that I actually, we, we made it mm. right. I did get through all six. Yeah, we did. Which is pretty good for me. Cause that's awesome. Man. I was, I actually kind of felt like, wow. Uh, well, okay. Um, I was emceeing this weekend and at one point you said 13 as if there was 13 points. No, like, wait, no, end, sorry. It's the end. I said it was verse 13. Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> I just lost track of the numbers. Because mm-hmm. once you get above like three or four, I'm like, well, I don't know. Who even knows what they Well, but there, you could have kept going with those. Like, So could you, what are some more um, characteristics of false teachers that maybe you didn't touch on that you would? Well, the, I, I mean, uh, the characteristics of false teachers are things that are being mentioned, at least in the passage itself, right? Yeah. So um, if, you, if you look at the passage, there are several uh, pieces that could be pointed out. Um a bunch of stuff that I actually want. I got an, I got an email from a guy. One of the more interesting things that uh, we were talking about was the, was when we were talking about the angelic visit visitors. Mm. Right. So, cause that's a big debate in, in Genesis six. What's really interesting is that Jude actually, he cites approvingly first Enoch, which is kind of arguing that the, the, for those of you who aren't at church, the argument was, uh, what Jude was saying that uh, there were angels who left their proper dwelling. And that is a reference to Genesis six, where, uh, where it says that the sons of God that came down and had, had relations with the daughters of men. And the result was the Nephilim, the great mighty warriors of the day. Okay. And so the, there's a big debate about that. And who are the Nephilim? Who are the sons of God? Does that, is that a reference to people, to men? Or is it a, re- a reference to angelic uh, persons? And so if Jude appeals to First Enoch, which is really clear, saying it's angelic. So the Jewish Jewish tradition actually holds it to be angelic. And then the question becomes, is, well, is he just referencing this as kind of a shared history? You know, hey, it's like that story of, you know, Mary had a little lamb, you know, about, mm. <laughs> which is not based on. Mary had a limit. Little Lamb is not a necessarily a historical account. It's just a culturally, you know what I mean. We just assume mm-hmm. it to be true, mm-hmm. or assume, assume a common heritage with it. Is it like that, or is it actually a historic event? It is something that actually happened. Is Jude by citing it um, actually endorsing it? I, I I used to I used to believe that the sons of God were just men, uh, but Jude's approach here really has changed my mind. I think that. I think he does. I think he does like every story he tells here, he assumes the historicity of it. Mm-hmm. I think that in, in doing like, I, I have a hard time separating him treating the historicity of Sodom and Gomorrah and, uh, Israel coming across the red sea differently than the way he treats, uh, some of the stuff he quotes for first to Enoch. So anyway, Based on that grounds, I think that that's probably the case. So anyway, you asked me some stuff. I went into that a little bit, but that's always a pass, always an issue that lots of people want to know lots about. It doesn't have a whole lot to do with the false, false teaching or false teachers. But there's lots of stuff that's said in this in this passage, verses five to uh, thirteen. We actually in, initially we're going to go all the way through sixteen, but there's just too much, too much there. Um, I didn't mention the fact that there are wild waves of the sea foaming up their shame, which is an image probably to. If you ever stood in the ocean and have, you know, that foam coming up and you get all that, there's like grungy junk on top of the foam. That's yeah. the image that he's playing with there is that the wild, it, the, the, the waves of the sea, it, they're, 
everything they do surfaces their their immorality and disgusting uh, actions. So he's reiterating the fact that they act and live in ways that are contrary to God and his word uh, there. He talk, he actually calls them irrational animals at one point. Uh, they, they operate only by instinct. So, and there's something to be said there about the, they're driven by their, I mean, what are animals that are irrational? They're driven by their taste, their lusts. That's kind of what his take is there. The word perversion that's earlier is a big debate about, he, he says that uh, they, the Sodom and Gomorrah gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. That word perversion, there's some debate about it. M- most commentators say that it, re- it refers to homosexual acts. And so this ends up lending credence to the belief that Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed because of their, because of uh, sexual immorality in general, but, but homosexual activity in particular, which of course has huge implications for world today. So there's a lot. My point is that there's a ton here and a ton actually that has specific application, I think, to false teaching in our in our world today. In fact, I made a big deal about the dreams thing, largely because I think that that's large. That's what happens in mm. our world today, just mm. like then, mm. is that people, people who are false teachers, they love just they love to quote their dreams and basically replace the scriptures and the authority of the Bible with their own dreams and, and visions and things. And it's not that there's anything wrong with a vision or dream. It's there's everything right with them as long as they're in line with the word of God, but Mm. they're often not they're in addition to, and they oftentimes just support the greed of the person who is, who has the vision or dream, right? Mm. I had a dream. I mean, what do you do with Oral Roberts and what four and a half million dollars or Jesus is going to kill me? He told me last night in a dream. That's what he said. Like, what, what is that about? (laughs) Is that, Okay, so why do you need four and a half million dollars? Well, so I can pay for my my ministry, which of course is failing at the time, and it's just it, there's a lot of spiritual abuse involved in there. That's not the way that a shepherd of the church is supposed to manipulate people to give them money. That's ridiculous. Hmm. The man at the time was living very high on the hog, and I don't know. It just you, you see this sort of stuff all the time. I'm always surprised at how often Christian people are um, treat the dreams and visions of of others as being more, more authoritative than, mm. than, uh, what they read in the Bible. It's almost like if you, dis- if you disagree with the dream or vision, you're kind of a hater or you're mm. like closing off or mm-hmm. quenching the Holy spirit. Mm-hmm. I don't, I, I don't really understand it. And yet you have explicit statements made in Jude about how that's the way that ho- that's the way that, uh, the false teacher are going to operate. Hmm. Interesting. And is there anything else you want to add? No, to that? don't. I could go on and on. So I've already <laughs> blathered on and on about about it. Here's a here's one thing I was thinking about when we're thinking about false teachers. Um, I don't know if we've covered this before, if this was mentioned in a sermon, but maybe we could elaborate on it. But my understanding of what also would make someone a false teacher is they're um, they're not speaking about something. So you could look at the course. Maybe you don't hear it because there's obviously like if you came to Northview on a weekend. And you didn't hear us talk about hell because maybe the passage wasn't about that. But you wouldn't say, oh, these guys just avoid speaking on hell. But if you notice that actually over the course of a year, it's never been mentioned or even alluded to because that's, you know, you don't want to discourage people from coming back to the church. Wouldn't we say that just avoiding certain contentious issues is actually false teaching because you're beginning to only just paint parts of the gospel? Greg, what do you think? I think it would be. um... Does that make sense? Yeah, I think I know what you're getting at. I, th- I think um, 
first of all, I, I think it's helpful and maybe this has changed the conversation too much, but it, I think it is helpful to say that there's a difference between false teaching and faulty teaching. And I think that one characteristic of at least faulty teaching is, is not being willing to go to the extent that the passage you're studying goes to. So if the passage you're studying brings up something about, about the, the wayward effect of dreams, potentially to, to diminish that point and to not bring it up because it, it doesn't fit within your system, I think is, is not saying enough about what the text is actually trying to say. Likewise, if the passage was about hell, but you decided you didn't want to talk about that because you're whatever, fill in the blanks of the rationale to not talk about what the text talks about, I think can be an evidence of, of teaching faulty things. Um, I would be more hesitant at labeling someone a false teacher until they would actually deny those things to be true. Um, I think it would just be an example of not as great exegesis to, to just go where the text goes. But mm. I, I think it's a better question to say, okay, well, do you deny these things? Because if you deny them to be true, then I, I think I'm more comfortable moving towards the false Yeah, you want to be careful with, I mean, this is the thing though. I I, I mean, Jude, Jude uses the language and we're using the language of false teacher because that's what, that's what he's mm-hmm. de- dealing with. And so to be faithful to the passage itself, you're, when you're preaching it, you're preaching about false teachers, but there should, there needs to be some nuance and understanding of that. And by the way, let's, uh, let's be really careful with throwing words like heresy and false, false teacher around mm-hmm. too quickly. You need to do your homework. You need to understand what people are saying. Oftentimes they don't mean what, mean what you think they mean mm-hmm. by what they're saying. They're just either not, you know, they're, they haven't communicated it clearly enough, or maybe the audience that they're speaking to is a little different than what you're assuming. Mm. And we end up jumping on them and throwing rocks at them. I, I think that there's a way for us to carefully question mm-hmm. what they're saying for clarity's sake. So here's what I hear you saying. Is that what you're saying? Mm-hmm. And then they can say yes or no. And then you can engage in a dialogue to clarify what you think they're saying and then also clarifying. So here's, here's why I think that's troublesome. If you say those sort of things to people, you know, a lot of times, you know, we were talking just before we started, uh, we turned on the recorder machine here. We were talking a little bit about, um, you know, Christology and, and Trinitarian thought, you know, like how father, son, Holy spirit and the dual nature of Christ and stuff. There are a lot of people who haven't thought through the implications of some of the stuff they teach about the Trinity. And if you showed them the implications Mm. of that, they'd be like, Oh, right. Oh, right. totally. Oh, yeah. Okay. I see what you're saying. Totally. Uh, it doesn't mean that I totally agree with you, but I'm going to have to think about that. Do you know what I mean? Yep. I just think that there should be a bit of charity given in that regard and that you can engage in that, re- in that, in that way. Now, if somebody has written a book and they have clearly in that book said mm-hmm. certain things and then doubled down on it after being critiqued, I think now you have reason to say, okay, so this person's received criticism and stuff, but this is the viewpoint that they hold. Mm-hmm. So, and that it does, it does fit the, fit the historical characterization of a heretic or and, something. To and that this effect. is where I, I think utilizing some of the old documents that the church has had throughout our, our centuries of some of our creeds and that kind of stuff is really helpful because if we hear someone talking about something that seems off, you can kind of go to one of those old creedal statements. Like if it's a Trinitarian thing, you can look at the Athanasian creed or whatever, Chalcedonian. You can go to some some document and say, okay, here's a, so would you deny this? 
like th- this part of the creed, is this something you could still accept? Cause that, I think that's a helpful way to, to see, Oh no, I, I'm actually, I, sorry, I guess I misspoke or I misunderstood. Like I, I still want to be within the realm of church tradition here. I think it can be a helpful move for us to, to rely on some of the work that older, smarter theologians have, have gone through and trying to articulate exactly what we believe the Bible teaches on these matters, utilize those and, and say, okay, let's use this as a bit of an example. And, and are you still willing to accept this? And then maybe we can have conversations about how we can tweak our language to be sound, more faithful mm. to what you already believe to be true. Mm. Yeah. So I like that. What you said though, just be careful about like oh, I think interact with people stuff more. Do you think? Before so there's two, the, there's the temptation for me, I just if I say like temptation is you hear one person say one thing, mm-hmm. oh total heretic, but then you listen to more of their content, you say oh I I understand it more. Yeah, mm-hmm. but that should never be the first thing you say total heretic. It like honestly, it's it there should just be you put you put a question mark in your mind about what they said, and you say well I'm gonna I'm gonna do some more mm. talking to them about reading more of what they're trying to say. I I, I just here's my fear. It's in two directions about this. The the first direction, when, we dealing, when we're dealing with false teaching in the church, one of the big errors is to claim that it isn't there and doesn't happen mm-hmm. uh, and to be way too conciliatory about it. Mm-hmm. I think that that tends to be, in general, that tends to be the majority approach in the postmodern world because hey, how do I know it's true and not true? And that's just your interpretation. And and I think it's fair to say, especially in a Canadian context, right. which, which we're, we're born and raised in this idea of a pluralistic worldview and to be really, really careful to, to maybe not ever say right. someone else is wrong. So, so that is, I, I think that there's an error that you can make there and that for those people, I'm going to say, you need to contend. This is book of Jude is really helpful mm-hmm. for you because that's what he's talking to you. He's saying, look, and they're, they're in your midst and you don't want to approach you like you don't want to. Mm confront it in your mind. You don't want to stop listening to them. And so on an apostolic authority, he's challenging you to think, think through this and be more aware. That's, that's the one side. The other side is that you become this like heresy hunter Mm -hmm. and you think that everybody who uses language, even in the slightest way that is mistaken, even in a sermon, I mean, I've I've said things in sermons before that I, I, that even after the sermon, I was like, wait a minute, that's not right. Mm. Well, I don't have a chance to go back immediately and and cha- and change that, right? But it's usually been slip of the tongue stuff, like this happened at this point instead of that point, or do you know the story is a little bit out of order or something to that effect? But the intent is not there for me to like. If you came to me and said, "Actually, this is what happened in this order," I'd be like, "Oh yes, mm. yes, that's right. Mm-hmm. Thank you." Mm-hmm. But but it's not. That's not just. But there's other people who make those kinds of errors as well. We're all learning. We're all growing. Sometimes we think we believe a theological viewpoint until we're instructed otherwise. I want you to think about Apollos Mm. in this situation, Mm. right? And he's confronted actually by uh, Priscilla and Aquila and they lead him into a better understanding of things. I think that's good. That's good, right? Mm. The sign that he, he is willing to adhere to their, their view, the viewpoints that they bring forward is, is a sign of his, that he's a good teacher. Mm. But I think you can get, fall off the other end of the wagon and become this massive legalist, this uncharitable, hard-hearted, you know, and you'll hide behind your doctrinal purity and so that you can throw rocks at everybody else because mm. you think you're right about everything. Mm-hmm. And I mean, ironically, there's I, I know of a guy 
who has a radio program that I've listened to from time to time, who does this. And it's funny when he's doing it, like I wrote my master's thesis on a, a particular passage of scripture that he, his, his viewpoint is completely different than mine. And I think I could argue quite strenuously that he's wrong about it. That in fact, he's twisting, to use his language, he's twisting scripture. Mm. But I, it's, first of all, it's not a major, major issue. And second, his is, you know, there are, there are people in the church who a long time have held his viewpoint. I think that they're wrong, but he, he's, he's very uncharitable with other people whose opinions mm-hmm. he doesn't share, mm-hmm. even if those issues aren't quite as severe. And I, I, in the end, I just think that this, that's the wrong way to go too. You be, I actually think you can sin on that side of the equation as well. Mm. So can you do both? I think we can do both, right? Mm-hmm. Like we can be careful, contend for the faith but not become a jerk about it for goodness sake and have some charity and Mm -hmm. willingness to embrace people where they're at and help them to grow and understand even teachers. Mm -hmm. It's man, the internet age makes a lot of this really interesting, right? Because you kind of, you you have to pick your spots a little bit about, you know, who you're listening to and how you choose to engage with the material and how you choose to engage with them as a, as a pastor or preacher or whatever, because you could literally, you could spend, all the hours of your life, just listening to content that people put out and and critiquing it and evaluating it and having conversations about it. So th- this is the, here's me making a case against the internet saying, you know, th- there was something about <laughs> Greg the, versus the internet. It's there's something about the, the having a local church yeah, that pastors teach at that you can have conversations with those pastors yeah. and say, Hey, I don't actually know if that convert, if that topic was handled as well as possible here. Let's let go to this passage. Maybe this will flesh it out a little bit differently. But now it, with, with the age of the internet, it's like everyone feels like, or, or some, some of these discernment guys feel like it's their job to like, make sure that everyone yeah. that has some kind of platform fits their grid theologically. And sometimes it can be helpful. And other times it's just really exhausting. Uh, and you feel, you right feel like saying, Hey, why don't you like go for a walk? <laughs> You know, totally. like go enjoy them, go play with your kids. <laughs> right. Totally. Right. Go, go play a silly game like Quirkle right. with your children. Yeah, it'll be okay. Yeah. What game? It's a game called Quirkle. It's good fun. I've never heard of that game. Well, just because you haven't heard of it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. <laughs> we have a false gamer here, Greg. Totally. Faulty. Faulty gamer. Hey, uh, we have a question here from our listeners. This is from one of our guys, Owen. Owen's a friend of the show. Thanks, Owen. Thanks, Owen. He says this, in the past, Northview pastors have have referred to theological debates slash issues as open-handed and close-handed. Is biblical inerrancy a close-handed or open-handed issue? Given the sermon series, is this an issue I need to con- confront my friends on? Well, it's a good question. It's very good. Thanks, Let's Owen. define biblical inerrancy. It's the belief that the, uh, the Bible, pro- properly stated, I think it's the belief that the Bible is true in all that it affirms. Okay, so so when I make that statement, I am saying the Bible doesn't need to be true in things it doesn't affirm, and you think it affirms. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So we're going to debate about what it affirms and doesn't affirm. So the whole debate over Genesis 1 and mm-hmm. the age of the earth mm-hmm. is actually a debate about if the Genesis 1 is affirming a particular date mm-hmm. of, or age of the earth, okay? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, we say that the Bible affirms whatever the authors of the Bible, human inspired by divine there, right? So God is using human authors, but he uses the human author's personality. And so whatever that human author 
is affirming is what we're saying is truthful. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting. You get in a passage like Jude is a good example. Mm-hmm. So we would say, so Jude cites actually quotes or makes reference to uh, the book of First Enoch, which is not, I think, an inerrant text inspired by God and falls under the category of scripture. In fact, I stand on the shoulders of most of Christian history saying that. And yet I would say that some of the sections that he does make reference to are when Jude speaks about them, Jude's words about them are inspired. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. And so if Jude ends up quoting first Enoch approvingly at that point, first Enoch is inspired graphe Greek meaning scripture. Okay. That point, that part that he. Yep. But not quoted. the whole of it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And the apostle Paul comes along and he, and he quotes it Mar- at Mars Hill in, in Acts 17. He'll quote, uh, some pagan philosophers. So what what he's when he quotes them approvingly, what he's essentially done is not turn the whole of their work into something that is God breathed, but that part of it, okay, is approved by Paul, who is God breathed that approval. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so that's what we mean by the doctrine of inerrancy. It's uh, the Bible's truthful in all it affirms. I think that it is a very important doctrine to believe. I think there are a lot of people who believe in inerrancy, but don't like the word for other reasons. Okay. They just, they think it's a bad word. They think it's a modernist conception of truth. They think all sorts of stuff that I'm very happy to engage in. And they would prefer to say, I have a high view of scripture. And if you push them, they would say, yeah, no, I think the Bible is truthful in all it affirms. So, I, I think that there's a large category of people. So my point is that if you just using the word inerrancy doesn't settle things right. for me, Right. that in the end, you need to understand what people mean by what they say. If they say instead, though, well, I think the Bible lies. Well, now I think that you've got a problem because the Bible's testimony about itself is that it, it is, it's God's very words. Mm-hmm. So if God's very words can, can be lying, mm then I think that that's a significant, significant problem. So would you, would I put it, would I put it in open-handed, close-handed or false and faulty teaching? I don't know. I'm not entirely sure hmm. at this point. I'm not entirely sure. I think it's a, it's a significant thing. I think the way, if you treat the Bible as it's less than authoritative or less than truthful in all it affirms, hmm. then I think that you've basically placed yourself in authority over it. And you are, it depends on what you're going to deny though. So I don't know if that, that belief itself is false, but what it might lead to, does that make sense? Yep. Is a lot sure. of false doctrine because you're going to end up denying things the Bible clearly says. And you say, well, I don't really like that. Yep. And, and you'll, you'll end up relying upon a really like, well, the Bible's not truthful everywhere. Yeah. That kind of stuff. Yeah. I think it's, it's also given kind of the conversation, the way that the question was, was phrased. I think it's helpful when we don't just choose particular theological buzzwords or, or um, names for things and then become so attached to the name of the thing that if we hear someone say something like, well, I don't know, I have some questions about the inerrancy of scripture. That, that immediately, <laughs> because they don't affirm the the name, that that means that person's a heretic. Right. I and think we used to be really careful to say, okay, this, Kyle Meeker does this all the time. Whenever I say anything, I think it's because I'm a bad communicator, but he'll say, what do you mean by that? So when you say that, what do you mean? What do you mean by what you're saying? I think there's a way more helpful first move 
when we hear someone say something that we feel is like a little bit off maybe from the truth to say, well, what do you mean by that? And then see where the conversation goes from there. But I see way too many conversations blow up way sooner than they need to. Totally. Because people are committed to their their little tagline theological words. And when someone bristles against that, then the whole thing, it's now it's fighting words. When it probably you guys were closer to agreement than you think you were. Kind of like you and Leland on Facebook. Totally. Whenever Leland Claus in April I see 28th, it, comedy night. I lose it. <laughs> Once I hear the word Leland, I get Do you know, triggered. though, seriously, this is basically getting back to the point we made before. It's just, it. it can, can we be careful yet charitable? Can mm-hmm. we? Mm-hmm. Like, I think we can. I think that that's what, I think that's what God really wants of his church is to mm-hmm. be careful yet charitable. Mm-hmm. And I find, unfortunately, in this weird way, churches and Christians who are particularly concerned with sound doctrine end up lacking charity Mm. and they lack a, a they lack grace Mm. in the lives of lots of people. And yet those that are the most gracious don't care about doctrine. I, I, it bothers me that that, Mm -hmm. that that's the case. Mm -hmm. We really should aspire to both Mm -hmm. and embracing both. So if you find yourself quick, to the trigger constantly about someone's false doctrine. I'm just going to try to push you to say, look, you really need to think a little bit more about hearing people out. And like, I'll tell you, honestly, that's, that is, that tends to be my default mm. personally, because I care a lot about truth and I care a lot about doctrine. And so when I hear someone pray in a particular way, or I hear someone sing a song in a certain way, I'm like, nah, I don't like that. You know, like immediately I, mm. that kind of thing bothers me. But so I need to, I need the, the Lord's help mm. to, to be more charitable and, and try to do the very thing as Kyle's a good friend. He's been a good friend of mine for years. And I always appreciate him because he does push that direction. He's like, so just seek out what they mean by what they're saying first. Right. But I do think that it's, it goes the other way and I, I keep wanting to push this. I mean, yeah. the, Jude is very helpful for lots of people mm-hmm. because so many people don't care. Mm-hmm. They think that false doctrine is not that big a deal mm-hmm. and it might be a big deal for the false teacher, but I'm not responsible for it because I'm just the one who's listening. But I, okay, yeah, but Eve was led into great, great uh uh, a, a destiny that she did not want by by the, the lying serpent. Mm. So throughout the Bible, it's not just the one who does the lying. It's the one who follows in their footsteps, who receives the judgment. In fact, that's a big portion of what we just preached about this last week. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you have a responsibility to contend for the faith. That might be a good way to clarify here because there's a question that said, you said before on the podcast that false teaching does not cause condemnation or false teachers aren't necessarily condemned themselves. Uh, do, well, do you agree with those? No, I don't. I, I'm not sure that, that we said that. If we said okay. that, well, the way I'm understanding those words, right? Uh, I, th- I, I think, disagree. I, I think that there are... I, what we're going to make a distinction between is false and faulty okay. teaching, okay? So this is the open-handed, close-handed. There are some things that don't rise to the level of heresy. There's the things. There are some things that don't... Right. Destined someone for eternal judgment. I should probably finish the question. It said, so um, you've said before the podcast, the false teaching does not cause condemnation or false teachers aren't necessarily condemned themselves. If this is true, what is the purposely, what is the purpose of actively deterring people from false teaching? Would it not be wiser to draw people to Christ rather than spend time on correcting false doctrine? Which I guess is kind of what you're getting at with, with Eve is if, if you're not spending time, 
actually deterring people from the false teaching, they're going to fall into that. And they're going to fall into sin like Eve did. I think we really need to come to grips, though, with uh, the first few lines of Jude. Jude 3 and 4. Jude, Jude 3, 3 and 4. And the reason I'm saying that is because I, like, I think that the impulse of every good pastor is the same that Jude has. I don't want to talk about this. Right? Mm-hmm. I don't want to talk about false teaching. I totally, I actually agree with the last line in that, in the, e- in the email that should, wouldn't it be better? Yes, absolutely. In a perfect, wonderful world, all we would be talking about is, uh, the mutual, we would be mutually affirming one another in the mm-hmm. salvation we share, mm-hmm. talking about the glories of the gospel. And most of the ministry that I have in my life will be spent doing that. However, we live in an age, as I've, as I've said, and Judas said that, that we're there, these are dangerous waters. And so we need to be careful. I use the image of, uh, of, you know, leaning over the front of the boat, looking for sandbars. I think that that's probably the posture kind of playing the border guard. You have to have the kind of posture, assuming that there are those who are going to lie to you. And because that's the case, it is the responsibility of any good pastor to warn the sheep, to, to protect them from, from the wolves, from the danger that might come. And so by calling that out and warning them that that's actually the case, or the hope is to change their posture so that they will be protected against it. So again, totally on board with the idea that I would, I, that I would love to not talk about this. However, the question that I don't agree with the beginning portion, I, I do not believe that uh, false teaching is does not end someone in, I mean, in the case of Jude, they end, the false teachers end in blackest darkness and those who follow them, right? right. Just like those who followed Balaam and those who follow, followed the advice of Balaam and those who followed the way of Korah ended in judgment. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think we've talked in this podcast before about 1 Corinthians 3 uh, and the framework that Paul sets up there when it comes to teachers and those who teach well, they're building with costly stones. Those who teach poorly, they're building with materials that will burn up on the day of the fire, the great fire, the great day yet to come. And then there, but the people who build with those materials, they'll be burned up. The, they will be saved, but through the flames. And then there's the third category of the people who decided to, instead of build on the foundation, they decide to change the foundation altogether. And those people are false teachers who will not be saved. And there's no indication that we have to say, but the followers of those who bought into that foundational changing thing, while they might be saved, well, I mean, the Lord's going to save whom he wants to save. Right. And I will say that there's warnings for those who follow the false teachers, though. Right. That that they will end where the false teachers. That's what it means to be following following a wandering star. Right. Right? I I don't know how else you're going to interpret that. They're wandering stars that if you follow and you navigate by their path, you're going to end up where they end up, which yeah. is where blackest darkness is reserved forever. Yeah. But I think where the where the listener might have thought, may have heard us say that we don't think that they'll, they'll be condemned is when we are talking about something like 1 Corinthians 3, and we're talking about people who build with bad doctrines, but they'll mm-hmm. be saved. But that there's a different category. There's three categories in that passage, yeah. good teachers, not as good teachers and false teachers. Yeah. So we use the language and have in the last few minutes that this, this is the distinct distinction we're making when we say false and faulty. Mm-hmm. So we're saying that there's, there's good teachers, there's faulty teachers, and then there's false teachers. To be honest with you, everybody is probably at some level a faulty teacher. There are yep, things that sure. you're not getting right at for some sure. point. So we will stand, all of us who teach will stand before God and be like, ah, I missed that one. And it'll yeah. burn up. Right. Yep. But 
they will be saved as yet through fire and through the fire means the burning up of their, of the doctrines that they've taught that haven't been in line with Christ Mm -hmm. and the foundations of the gospel. Okay. So, so there are fault and and like, I'll give you real examples of faulty, faulty teachings. Somebody, uh, good brothers and sisters in Christ baptize their babies and I do not. One of us is right about that. Okay. So one of us will stand before God one day and be like, hey, okay. Uh, I, I think that uh, those, there are those who, uh, who believe that women should be elders of local churches and those who believe they should not be elders of local churches based upon biblical material. Both of them often argue from biblical material. Mm-hmm. One of us will stand before God one day yeah. and will have been wrong. Neither of us are heretic, brothers and sisters in Christ, right? You're not out of the faith because you say this. You 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 are just somebody who's again it it you're you're a fa- you're faulty at that point, yeah. right? Yeah. And we disagree about these. These are what we call the open-handed issues, right? There's lots and lots of them we could talk about, but there are ones that are close-handed, like the nature of Christ and mm. what He's done for His people and the reality of judgment and like basic fundamental aspects of the grand Christian story that God created how he created. We can debate about it's more, more, a little bit more open-handed, but like the fact that God created, that Mm. God is preexistent, that God is everywhere, that his the character traits of God, these things are fundamental. And so when you start messing around with saying, well, God actually is not like that, Mm. And where the Bible says, no, he's exactly like that. Mm. Okay. So n- now we're in a different category. Yep. You, you said, I mean, you're, yeah. you're, you're messing with things that have to do with the foundation. But what about, so you'll have so much teaching through the Bible about sexuality and how things ought to be. Mm-hmm. Are these open-handed or close-handed? Well, I think that Jude makes these cl- relatively close-handed because what he's, what he's arguing against in his book is a bunch of people who started teaching a doctrine, a kind of what we call antinomianism, a kind of like freedom and grace that that in his in their mind, the false teacher's mind, justified anything that people did, especially sexually. Mm-hmm. So Jude comes along and says, you can actually tell that these guys are false teachers because their actions, their sexual actions in particular, are against what God has revealed clearly through the apostles. Okay? So he's saying, based upon that... They are doomed for outer darkness. Okay, blackest darkness forever. So, I I used to have questions a little bit about this, but so but now based on what I've been reading and studying for the last while in Jude, I really have come to the conclusion saying no. If you say about sexual sin that uh, that what God has said in His Word is not true and you persist in a lifestyle not in accordance with the Word of God, no matter how you justify that, I think you're teaching false doctrine, and I think that you are in grave danger. But that's, again, that's based upon the what I think Jude is arguing about in, in his particular situation. There's a lot of similarity, dude, just so you know, between what the false teachers and Jude were arguing and what a lot of people these days are arguing about sexual sin. Yeah, people don't change that much, do they? No. Well, they're living out the implications of that sexual sin, and they're saying, no, God's cool with it. And that's the very thing that Jude was trying to argue against. Mm. Well, guys, we're at the end of the road here. That was a good discussion. Thank you for your time. 
We look forward to next week when Jeff will give us the review of Leland Clausen's Comedy Night on Saturday, April 28th at 7.30 after the Saturday night service. Rumor has it he'll be on the podcast. Rumor has it. Has, Rumor. Really? No. Okay. Leland? Oh, Leland, if you're out there, we know you're listening. Uh, you're welcome to be on this podcast sometime. Goodbye.